Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The people in North Korea, you know, are probably fed propaganda films about how brave their postmen are battling the snow. This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Oliver Wiseman, CapEx's editor. My guest this week is Rory Sutherland. Rory is the vice chairman of the advertising agency Ogilvy, a job title which the company's website describes as attractively vague. Rory isn't your average ad man. After more than 20 years as a copywriter and creative director for the firm, he set up an in-house behavioral economics practice. And outside the day job, he writes the Wikiman column for The Spectator. In his journalism, his speeches, and in conversation, Rory is a fount of counterintuitive, insightful, and entertaining arguments that mean he is never knowingly dull. I met him earlier this week at Ogilvy's London offices, where we discussed, among many other things, the relationship between innovation and marketing, why McDonald's is a safer bet than the fat duck, and what economists get wrong about human nature. I started by asking him what advice he has for those of us keen to persuade more people of the merits of the market. It's an interesting fact, isn't it, which is that you'll never get as much affection for the capitalist system uh, as you will for something like the NHS, Mm -hmm. Um, despite the innovation it delivers and the improvement in the overall quality of life. Mm -hmm. Broadly speaking, because I think we tend to devalue things which are motivated by Mm self-interest. And so we'll revere a scientist who makes a discovery far more than we will a drug company that makes a Mm -hmm. discovery. Mm-hmm. for example mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know I, I mean you might argue that economists are an unusual group of people in that um, if they've read Adam Smith they realise that self-interest can lead to extraordinarily beneficial outcomes I think they sometimes misread it into meaning that it will always lead to beneficial outcomes which I don't think is true um, but um, generally I think there's, a, there's an issue which is that we judge behaviours there's a very interesting experiment in experimental philosophy. I don't know if you've come across this experiment. I wish I could credit the person um, who, who thought of it, which is um, you ask a question, which is um, a chief executive has a choice of, of um, uh, essentially placing a factory either up in the hills or next to a river. And uh, you essentially say... The question is, do you want to site the factory next to the river or in the hills? And he replies, I don't care. Just tell me which, which one's more efficient and more effective, and I'll do it there. And he places it next to the river, which is more environmentally damaging mm-hmm. uh, in one situation. In another parallel universe, he, because of pure self-interest, 
he places it up in the hills, which is less environmentally damaging. Then you ask the question in the two universes, did he intentionally harm the environment? And people in the first instance say yes. Even though he said the environment is no consideration of his, it's purely a commercial decision, they say yes, he did harm the environment by not factoring it in, effectively. On the other hand, if you say, um, does he intentionally help the environment by placing it up in the hills, everybody says no. Mm-hmm. And so um, we do seem to judge uh, things not only by their outcome, but by their intentionality. And I think there's something interesting there, fundamentally, that mm. capitalism can never really expect uh, the, um, the plaudits and affection. That in some ways, I mean, in, in bizarre cases, I mean, state socialism probably achieves very well. I mean, you've got to remember also, I mean, the people in North Korea, you know, are probably fed propaganda films about how brave their postmen are battling the snow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I want to ask the question, actually. Um, uh, you know, and, and now, there may be an appreciation there of the services delivered by the state which is completely lost to services delivered by FedEx, UPS, or whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, I, the, because it's self-interest on this. On, on yeah, that actually the credit that is due to capitalism is essentially diluted by the self-interest with which it's performed. Well, you know, you've already made money out of this. Don't expect me to make you a hero as well. Yeah. Um, I... I um, but, but what, you're, what you're engaged in is an interesting question, which is that generally um, the achievements of capitalism... I don't even like the word capitalism very much. I mean, the, 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 the part of capitalism which is truly valuable isn't really the efficiency driving stuff. It's the innovation. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think there is a question now whether capitalism has been hijacked by kind of economists and accountants who are obsessed with the idea of essentially... Uh, the provision of goods and services at a lower cost, which is a relatively unexciting story. I would also argue capitalism is rather bad at it. If you actually know what people want exactly, then probably the most efficient way to deliver them is through a state monopoly. Um, uh, you know, if you could define if, exactly... If being the... Uh, uh, well, yeah. well, of course, the problem there is, interestingly, a marketing one, not really a, an economic one, in the sense that what a lot of marketers would say now is that people don't actually know what they want. They don't even know why they buy what they buy. Uh, they buy it using various unconscious mental motivations, mm. and then they subsequently post-rationalise their decision. And so people, not only can they not, only, not accurately report what they want, they can't even accurately report why they've bought what they've bought. So Nassim Taleb and I had a chat about this where we joked about what you might call the... Um, the hidden benefits of many of the things we do, e.g. the chief value of a dishwasher isn't really that it washes your dishes and plates, it's that it gives you a place to put dirty plates out of sight. (laughs) Now, I mean, that that sounds like a very frivolous point, but in fact, um, it's, you know, it is a, a handy convenience not having to wash up by hand. But for a family of two, for example, it's not particularly burdensome. What is really annoying, if you're a family of two, is having to stare at, you know, eight dirty plates or ten dirty plates for four hours of the day in between doing the washing up. And your dishwasher does a wonderful job of hiding them and keeping them out of your... um, on a factory system as well. 
Um, in the same way we joke that the root chief reason to own a swimming pool isn't to swim in it. It's so you can walk around your garden on a hot day in a bathing costume without feeling like a dick. <laughs> now, if you, I, know, I know this is always what marketers have viewed um, uh, uh, very sceptically with by um, anybody who isn't a marketer, which is saying, of course, X, you know, Gillette isn't about shaving, cars aren't about transportation. But actually, marketers are fundamentally right to ask that question, which is, you know, patently a super yacht, a per- private super yacht, is not about transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it, in many ways, I, mean, I did ask someone in the billionaire super yacht industry why really rich people want to own a super yacht to such an extent. And they said, there's one fantastic example, which is you can invite all your friends, colleagues, and indeed business rivals on board and effectively treat them like Captain Bly. So in other words, if you want to lord it over other people, when you actually own a super yacht, you're completely in control. You could buy the best villa in Tuscany and invite your friends to come and stay, but they'd actually turn up in a car or in a rental car, and you couldn't really stop them wandering off into the next village uh, to have a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be able to boss them around in the extent that you could on a ship. Mm-hmm. Whereas what you are on a ship is, in a sense, you're the governor of a prison. Uh, in which you have your friends, rivals, and other high-status people completely at your beck and call. Uh, you know, in other words, you can just say, uh, "Well, you can go to the beach, but we're, you know, we're weighing anchor in an hour and a half, so you better be back by ten thirty. And for people who particularly enjoy self-aggrandizement, there's nothing but a large boat that provides this level of, uh, you know, <laughs> level of, uh, of self-importance. But if you to get to get back to innovation and, and capitalism, which which you mentioned, um, and the marketing point, I mean, there's a sort of conventional wisdom would be that innovation happens uh, in a lab with scientists working, or, or on a computer with scientists working away at a, solving a sort of technical problem, and then the innovation, you know, the, the new shiny new product that's going to fix a problem in our lives is there, and you know the people sort of flogging it, essentially, you know, your lot are not part of that process. Now that's not. How you uh, see uh, I would go for, I, I would say actually there's something much more complicated than that going on. Uh, now, if you are in marketing or advertising, you will instinctively become a little bit Austrian in your economics. Okay. Now, I think a great tragedy of economics was that the Austrian school, partly because of their refusal to use maths, essentially got stymied. So it plays far too small a role in academic economic discussion. Because, of course, if you refuse to use maths, you can't really teach economics, can mm-hmm. you? Because now economics is kind of, uh, you know, essentially a masturbatory mathematical exercise. And, of course, they are obsessed with being seen to be a science, not a... Not yeah, a which, is, which, which, which is... Uh, and actually, in the process, have become a very unusual science, one where, where when, you, when reality fails to live up to your model you blame it on human irrationality. Now, no physicist can say, my theory is perfect, the only reason it doesn't apply is because of pervy electrons. And a very important thing is that I would argue that at some level, and I think um, uh, Peter Drucker, okay, who is interesting, he's a great marketing uh, guru, is the phrase that's always used. Uh, his dad was best mates with Schumpeter, though he was Austrian himself. And he argued that there are only two ways that business actually creates value, which is marketing and innovation. Anything else is a cost. Now, just to explain what he means there, I'd go even further and say that marketing and innovation are actually the same thing. Now, to understand this, what you've got to understand is that 
what we value depends not only on what it is, but on the context in which we perceive it. The same thing can be good or bad, depending on how it's portrayed, what our expectations are, uh, what, we what we describe as the competitive set. So Nespresso, for example, which is a very good innovation in technological terms, is also a fascinating marketing innovation. And the reason for that is that if you had sold Nespresso coffee in a jar, like Nescafe, a jar of Nespresso for an equivalent dosage of caffeine would cost 40 or 50 pounds. And you look at the jar in the shop and go, batshit crazy. Okay, I can't pay that. Now, interestingly, it doesn't come in a jar. It comes in a pod, and the pod costs about 29p. We don't know what a single Nescafe costs. What we do know is what a single coffee costs in Starbucks. And so we look at the 29p pod. We don't think it's expensive. We go, well, 29p would have cost me £2.40 in Starbucks. This machine's saving me a fortune. And that is indeed, even knowing the mental bias under which I'm labouring, that's how I justified my purchase of my first Nespresso machine, which is, well, if I don't buy a coffee on the way home, um, because I know there's a decent coffee waiting for me when I get home, basically that's 2.20 a day, it's 10 quid a week, the machine's free. And so the understanding here is that there are two ways you can create value. You can either find out what people truly want, and work out a really clever way to make it. Or you can work out what you can make and find out a clever way to make people want it. And Ludwig von Mises has this wonderful phrase in On Human Action, uh, which effectively says, by the way, the Austrians invented behavioural economics. I mean, praxeology was really a forerunner of behavioural science. Um, and they believed that economics was the study of praxeology under conditions of scarcity. In other words, praxeology is the wider study of human behaviour. Um, probably in a better world, I mean, maybe that was the intention, uh, praxeology would have become quite closely aligned to evolutionary psychology, in fact. And then under conditions of scarcity, you have economics. So by mm -hmm. definition, their view of economics was that it should be subordinate to psychology as a discipline. In other words, rather than... Uh, if, you, if you take a hierarchy of science, it kind of goes maths, physics, chemistry, biology, psychology, economics. Mm -hmm. okay? What economists have done is they've tried to actually um, effectively dehumanise the entire field by suggesting that economics is merely a branch of maths. And they've created a great short circuit in what you might consider the normal scientific hierarchy. But when you, when you say that thing, that the value of... Um, and what, sorry, what von Mises said in, on human action, and he means explicitly, uh, by the man who sweeps the floor, he means explicitly marketing and advertising, because he says so. Mm -hmm. okay. He says, uh, there is no useful distinction to be made between the value created in a restaurant by the man who cooks the food and the value created by the man who sweeps the floor. By which I mean is there is the food itself and there's the context in which we consume it and they both contribute to what we consider a good restaurant meal. If you went to a restaurant which had a Michelin-star chef and utterly fantastic food but the tines of all the forks were misaligned and there was a smell of sewage, you wouldn't enjoy your meal. In the same way, you can produce a, an ostensibly, objectively brilliant product and if you don't actually sell it the right way by choosing who you compare it to. Human perception is very comparative, in mm -hmm. one way. Or you don't sell it in a way that is um, meaningful and appropriate to a particular audience. Uh, then 
uh, it's exactly like producing Michelin starred food in a uh, in a restaurant that smells slightly of poo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, one of the great mistakes we make as marketers is we talk about added value as if value is inherent in the product, and then marketing adds a bit if you're lucky, a little bit of magic fairy dust. I would take a violent subjectivist view on this and say, no, it's multiplied value. What the thing is and how we perceive it are both interdependent components of value. Now, this leads me then to occasionally come head-to-head with decisions that are made um, based on standard economic assumptions, which I think are diametrically wrong in some cases. Um, At the moment, uh, you can uh, save, I think, in an ISA, £20,000 a year. That's correct? Another 20000 for your wife, and then you can have a child ISA as well. Now, let's park the question, which I, as a reasonably right-wing man, am still going to ask, which is, why the fuck does someone who can save £40,000 a year out of taxed income need a further tax break from the government? Okay. But I'll make a further point, which is when you make the maximum £20,000 a year, you reduce the motivation to save from, by most people. When it was £3,000 a year, people like you and me thought, hmm, well, if I don't use that allowance this year, I'll have missed out, okay? So if I can't put in three, I'll at least put in 1500 because I don't want this 3000 a year tax break to go to waste. When it's 20000 we just go, I'll leave it till next year. Well, because I'm, I'm, no, I'm going to be nowhere near that anyway, so why... No, no, why no exactly, why would I bother? I mean, you know, <clears throat> you know, solid, you know, okay, if I have a windfall, I might put twenty in. But... Um, what you have is literally unbelievably dumb decisions made because they don't understand at the very simplest what humans are trying to do. And what humans are trying to do, by the way, is not maximise utility on its own. If you think about decision making under uncertainty, there's a thing in statistics called the bias-variance trade-off. Mm-hmm. And not only are we trying to get a pretty good meal, we're also trying to get a meal which has a low variance, in particular, low potential downside. So no food poisoning would be... So, so, so that's why, I, I always argue, that's why McDonald's is in many ways the most successful restaurant in the world. Not because it's very, very good, but because it's incredibly good at not being terrible. Yeah. So if you ask even the snobbiest North London McDonald's despiser, they will nearly always have eaten at a McDonald's when they're in a strange country overseas, because they just can't take the risk. Um, what you're doing there is you're making a trade-off between what is the perfect average outcome, value for money, and actually uh, you're happy to accept slightly worse value for money in exchange for lower downside risk. Now, I would argue that's why most brands command a premium. What we're paying for is not superiority. We're actually paying for the fact that if I buy a television, let's invent a, a brand nobody's ever heard of, okay, if I buy a television from Huawei, which looks as good as... It's $200 cheaper than the Samsung. It looks as good. The picture quality seems fine. The features and functionality look pretty much the same. I'm still going to pay $200 more for the Samsung. And a large part of that, some of that may be status signaling. Not disputing that for a second, by the way. Um, you know, because my friends all know what Samsung means, whereas they haven't got a clue what Wongwei means, and they might respect me more for having a Samsung because I don't look like a tightwad. All that stuff's true. Also, I don't look weird having a Samsung. You know, very simple thing. If I buy Nike shoes, there's nothing particularly weird about wearing them. There's no risk of 
um, you know, appearing odd. Okay. So brands provide all those kind of social constructs, but there's another thing they provide, which is Samsung, has, it has taken Samsung, my guess is, 15 years and probably $50 billion of marketing money they'll never get back in order to be on a par with Sony in TV purchase. LG has done the same. You know, 15, 20 years ago, there were the kind of Korean cheaper variants, and then there was Sony up there on a pedestal. And bit by bit, they've clawed their way up. They have an enormous amount of skin in the game, to quote Nassim Talent, reputational skin in the game, because they have a huge amount now to lose from selling a bad product. So I know when I pay the 200 bucks extra for the Samsung TV, that the risk of it being terrible is inordinately less. Now, this is where it becomes really dubious for economists to decry human behaviour as being irrational, because let's say you wanted to buy... Let's say you were skint and you were 24 and you wanted to buy a second-hand car, and your friend said, what car would you like? And you said, now for a male spider in red. And you ended up buying from your aunt... Um, I'm just trying to think what sort of car it would have been 15 years ago. Uh, 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 not quite a... Yeah, OK, Ford Mondeo mm-hmm. in beige that was automatic when you wanted a manual and had seat fabric of almost uh, unimaginable hideousness. But you still ended up buying. What the hell are you doing there? Now, here, Daniel Kahneman would say, what you're doing is you're substituting an easy question for a difficult question. The difficult question is, what car should I buy? The easy question is, who can I trust to sell me a car? Answer my aunt. Now, if you understand that the person's trying to minimise downside risk, what you're doing is perfectly rational. You've discovered a heuristic, buy from a friend, a family friend who's related to me, okay? In other words, the opposite of buying at auction, where the previous owner is completely unknown to you. Um, You're buying from a family friend a car which, for all its faults in terms of upholstery, colour and being a weird automatic has the one great advantage that your aunt isn't knowingly going to sell you a car that's shit. So the information asymmetry there is very, very low. Mm-hmm. Now, once you accept that people are doing two things, at least two things, because I think there's more going on than that, obviously, but at least two things, they're not simply maximising expected utility when they make a purchase. Um, an enormous new range of human behaviour goes from being irrational to being actually ingenious and highly intelligent. Because what they are is they're various tricks. When I was about 23, there were a bunch of us down from university. We'd been living in London, working in London for about two years, and we had just about cobbled together enough money to buy our first shitty car. Now, second-hand cars actually objectively are cheaper in London than they are in the provinces. And I think the reason for that, though, is anonymity. Okay? There's reputational shame in a county town in a way that there isn't in a large city. And what we all did without knowing why, none of us explained it in kind of game-theoretic terms. Or, but like salmon returning to spawn, all of us left London, we went back to the provincial towns where we'd grown up, and we bought that first car from someone vaguely known to our dad. And what we were doing was actually not irrational. It was very clever reputational game theory. Right. A bit like buying a McDonald's burger in... Because the, the real miracle of capitalism is that it solved the trust problem. You know, any dick can manufacture things cheaply and then have nobody willing to buy them because they're just too uncertain. So, that, you know, that really is the extent to which good marketing and brand reputation and trust contributes to economic growth. 
Um, but you see, the great problem is, is that economists don't want to know all this shit. And I've often wondered the extent to which the innovative levels of consumption within a market... So I'd probably place the United States very high there, Scandinavia pretty high. The extent to which consumers believe life is capable of continuous improvement must, to some extent, drive economic growth. But for economists to acknowledge that would require them to become experts in anthropology, culture, psychology, rather than maths. Mm -hmm. So essentially, what economists love to do is to pretend that everything important in life is determined by that part of an economy which is easy to mathematically model. Now, you know, what part of the America, the success of the United States, other than the fact that it's very big, is driven by the fact that you have 350 million of, in some ways, if I'm being a bit cheeky and cynical, the world's most credulous people, Mm -hmm. okay? (laughs) (coughs) You know, to sell some cultures a new way of doing something is really painful. Whereas Americans are actually, wow, yeah, it's new and different. And that's actual, you know, which we occasionally, unfairly, I think, patronises childlike naivety and enthusiasm. That must be hugely economically valuable. Um, But the marketing component of value creation uh, and marketing and innovation, in other words, you you find a new, better way of getting people to want something, is just as important as finding a new way to make something. Mm -hmm. Because... You can present the same thing in two different ways, and you can make something that's shit brilliant. I'll give you one nice example, by the way. If, uh, are you a fan of expensive tea? Uh, my wife is, I think. That's okay. Um, before you give your wife a hard time for spending <laughs> sort of 12 quid on, uh, you know, a packet of monkey-picked uh, Darjeeling second flush, okay, bear in mind that if you make that tea with tap water, it's probably cheaper in volume terms than a bottle of bottled water is. So once you frame it that way, it seems insanely expensive if you compare it to PG tips. Uh, it's perfectly reasonable if you compare it to avian water. Um, other interesting cases in point would be, uh, weirdly, I persuaded my dad. My dad was, uh, you can understand why, he'd grown up in an age where you paid a TV licence and that was it. And I couldn't get him to get Sky uh, TV, any sort of pay TV despite the fact that he's the kind of man who would love nothing more than two hours of Nazi megastructures on the, the History Channel or whatever, or, you know, good dose of <laughs> Discovery Wings. And he wouldn't pay the, what was then £17 a month. And I tried the oldest, most boring, <laughs> unoriginal marketing trick in the book, which is to say, well, it isn't really, don't think of it as £17 a month, think of it as 60p a day. So, and you spend £2.40 a day on bloody newspapers. And suddenly he thought, well, now you look at it like that, actually it seems pretty reasonable. Mm-hmm. But if, I, if I'll happily pay, you know, two pounds for two newspapers, which he does, um, two newspapers, paying 50p for a whole swathe of extra television. And the same thing, framed badly or well, um, will arouse... And this is actually a vital question, which I, I think needs to be asked. The naive view of human perception is that evolution has given us perceptual mechanisms which more and more closely represent in our heads objective reality. Evolution doesn't give a shit about reality, accuracy. It only only cares about fitness and reproductive fitness. Therefore, if it has to make a trade-off between presenting the world more accurately and presenting the world in a way that will help us survive. So in other words, 
giving us an, a relative perception of colour and darkness rather than an absolute perception of colour and darkness, it'll go, it'll go fitness every time. Mm -hmm. okay. The extent to which, um, and this worries me, there's an assumption okay, in economics that human perception is objective. Because you have the thing and its various qualities, I guess, and you have um, what you might call, therefore, our perception of the thing is entirely neutral. It's unaffected by context, by comparison, by uh, who the person selling it is. You know, patently, you know, a recommendation for a tech pro product from Stephen Fry is different from the same recommendation when it comes from your cousin that you don't like very much, whatever it might be, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, if you think about it, okay, nobody's, nobody realises this. Your television is specific to higher primates. So a TV, or indeed a colour print magazine, in an advertisement, the reason it can create the whole spectrum of colours, um, or the whole visible spectrum of colours, uh, plus an extra colour, by the way, purple, which doesn't exist in physical reality, it's crazy in that hand, okay, um, is because our cones basically come in three types, which is red, green, blue. Mm -hmm. And by mixing red, bleed, green, blue, you can stimulate the cones in such a way that it's exactly the same as seeing yellow, which is halfway between red and green. Okay? Mm -hmm. A mix of red and green is indistinguishable from our eyes, uh, not necessarily your dog or your parrot, but our eyes is indistinguishable from yellow, which is a banana. Um, there's, you know, uh, equally, there's no such thing as magenta light, by the way, on the spectrum. That's a mixture of red and blue. It's the absence of green, weirdly, okay? If you want to really go strange there. So it doesn't actually exist in, in physics. Now, there was an experiment done with some um, uh, birds where they showed birds photographs of fruit. And the photographs of fruit were, of course, human photographs. So the bananas look yellow. Uh, the ripe bananas look yellow, the unripe bananas look green. If you show these photographs to a bird, they'll see something completely different. So they might be completely uninterested in the ripe bananas, and you think, well, that's interesting, they're interested in ripe bananas. Mm -hmm. The truth is that in a bird's particularly, I think they, I think they have, a, well, first of all, they can detect infrared, no, ultraviolet, can't they? There's a whole lot of weird shit going on in bird vision. <laughs> Pigeons are particularly strange. Um, they're seeing something totally different to you, because they're not seeing a banana, a ripe banana, they're seeing a picture of a ripe banana. And once you realise that actually human perception does a really weird job with reality, it isn't a question of marketing being added value and an optional extra. It's actually essential in many cases for us to actually perceive. Your television is essentially hacking you. Mm -hmm. um, your dog probably thinks your TV is shit. Of course, it's what, you know, the, the biggest... Um... You know, the most sort of famous innovator of recent times, Steve Jobs, you could argue that was... I mean, Apple is a, is a marketing so, marketing first, isn't it, really? Uh, it's, uh, well, what, or it's not inventing new technologies. Well, so, so you could make a perfect case. And Tim Harford always asked me this. He said, why do you people have such a hard time? You've got a marketing company, which is essentially the world's first trillion-dollar company. Jobs's genius was to say... And this is a really important point of innovation. I talked about human perception being weird. Human attention is really weird. So that um, there's an element of whiziarty, as Daniel Kahneman calls it. What you see is all there is. Uh, his other great phrase is, nothing is as important as you think it is while you're thinking about it. That our attention affects the relative importance we attach to things. And so 
one way in which you can innovate is just to say everybody else in this market, probably driven by the need to be rational, is assuming that X is important. What we're going to do is to say actually Y is important and we're going to make a lot of noise about why, so why becomes more important to the viewer, and therefore our advantages become more salient and our weaknesses become less salient. So a classic case of marketing reinvention there is Cunard. You know, the liners competed for the blue ribbon across the Atlantic, and it was widely believed to be all about speed. Then a very interesting Italian liner came along. It never quite worked, actually, with a very strange centre of... Um, it had a kind of gyroscopic thing in the middle which supposedly reduced instability. And so various liners would try competing mostly on speed, the Blue Ribbon, the United States, the Normandy, the Queen Mary, I guess it was. Okay? You had a, this interesting Italian ship which was partly competing on non-seasickness, although I think it kind of made the problem worse. <laughs> but it was a brave idea. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Um, particularly, you know, okay, I, I'm seasick, terribly seasick, so I would have paid extra to go on that one. Okay? Um, and then, of course, Boeing comes along, and the whole speed competition becomes totally irrelevant. So what you have to do is, in a sense, Cunard then invented the cruise liner, because it said, actually, the whole point of a voyage on a ship isn't to get to your destination, it's the journey in itself, and well make the journey fantastic and a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and you focus people on what you get on the journey, not speed, and that then becomes comparatively more important in their... Um, uh, in their selection criteria, speed becomes less important and therefore you can still fill a ship. I mean, not maybe in the volumes you could have done uh, 40 years before, but you can still fill a ship. And so this idea that there's this kind of perception-free, objective view of reality on which we, which we use to make decisions is... I mean, it's, it's biologically illiterate, really. Mm. Um, I mean, very I mean just on, on that. I mean, the interesting thing about the, on the economics point is, you know, behavioural economics has had a huge, has been hugely successful in the last couple yeah. of decades in terms of people, you know, realising this. And, and how has that affected kind of traditional economics? Yeah, some, I mean, part, some parts of it have annoyed me because it, I think they have tarred parts of human behaviour as irrational, which are actually clever, provided you realise what the person is trying to do. And the, the interesting thing about what people are really trying to do, I don't think anybody, maybe apart from me and 20 other weirdos, ever goes in and goes, I think I'll pay 200 extra for the Samsung because of the lower variance. You know, the Samsung TV is unlikely to be a crock of shit. Mm -hmm. And in fairness, one of the ways Samsung has built an extraordinary reputation is, you know, if I've got to buy something like a printer, I'll typically buy a Samsung printer because it's not going to be terrible. Um... And, and by the way, I mean, if you think about it, okay, what is the single restaurant in the UK which had the worst ever E. coli outbreak? I think it's the Fat Duck in Bray, which is a three-star Michelin. Right, right. Restaurant. Yeah, yeah. So the, the 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 average of a Michelin-star meal is higher, but the variance and particularly downside risk of disappointment. I mean, I'll, I'll be blunt with you, okay. This is slightly vulgar for a podcast, but I get ill or a stomach upset five times more frequently in a proportion of the last 30, 40 years of my life uh, eating at fancy restaurants than I have done eating at McDonald's or KFC. Trump, interestingly, who's a germaphobe, is a massive fast food... Uh, I was going to say connoisseur. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, um, 
So once you understand that distinction, the interesting thing is we don't even understand the distinction in ourselves. We instinctively feel it, but that what we probably do is we look at the Samsung TV and we feel less fear than we do looking at the one-way television. But fear is a visceral emotion and it isn't really connected to those parts of the brain which do the talking or the post-rationalising. And so... Uh, and if you think about it, the really important things in, in the brain are likely to be felt rather than thought. Now, that, if, just to explain what that is, really, really important decision-making qualities are going to be put onto the brain's motherboard yep. because that way they can be inherited, they don't need to be taught. You know, it's much safer for evolution to make me dislike snakes mm -hmm. than it is to rely on every generation of people. To know that snakes to know are poisonous. That, you know, if it's long and thin, you, you, could have, you could have, no one ever had to come up with a mnemonic uh, to say, you know, if it's long and slithers, give it, you know, a wide yeah. breath, okay? <laughs> because most people, uh, you know, basically go, it's a snake, okay? Um, and uh, you can do that with cats and cucumbers. Uh, you know, have you seen that trick where you, you hide a cucumber on the ground just out of your cat's angle of view? And when the cat turns around and suddenly sees its peripheral vision, a long, dark thing crouching on the ground, the cat basically leaps up in the air. YouTube has quite a lot of this, if you're, if you're sadistically inclined. Um, but it, it's so interesting because economics without biology... Now, I'll, I'll give you a wonderful quote. Okay, um, a guy called E.O. Wilson, great devotee of an idea called consilience in biological disciplines, and so the, the author of a book called Sociobiology. The story goes that someone once explained Marxism to E.O. Wilson, who, among other things, is the world's leading expert on ants, which I think makes him a myrmecologist. Is that right? You tell okay, me. I okay. don't know. Yeah. Formicologist is no, that's an expert in kitchen surfaces, so can't do that. Must be myrmecologist. Okay. Um, and someone described Marxism to this man, and he eventually replied, "Beautiful theory, wrong species." By which he effectively meant that actually, you know, among certain species, a form of Marxism can work because genetically they're so closely interrelated that the good of the whole and the good of the individual rarely come into conflict in, in genetic terms. I think I've got this right. Mm -hmm. Totally up, by the way, for biologists telling me, Sutherland, you're full of shit, because I kind of rely on that, to <laughs> keep me honest. Um, and so... But the point is, that wouldn't work. So, so it's crazy, the idea that you can have economics which is non-species specific, strikes me as very, very weird, because patently the way we've evolved to make decisions involves an enormous amount of unconscious mental mechanisms, uh, which aren't really up for negotiation. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Um, what now, by the way, th- this is where neoliberal economics, one of the things, of course, that neoliberal economics never really understood is, is comparative fairness. And, I mean... Apparently, if you do kind of econ 101 at university, they go and say, which country would you rather live in, students? Would you rather live in a country where the average salary was $90,000 and you earned sixty, Or would you rather live in a country where the average salary was $20,000 and you earned forty? And quite a lot of the students go, the second one. And the economists say, you are wrong, because... $40,000 gives you much less utility than sixty, and the wealth of the people around you is irrelevant to your consideration. Who fucking believes that? I mean, seriously. Okay. I mean, there are loads and loads of things. I mean, attractive members of the opposite sex, A, beachfront property, B, status, okay, which are patently positional and relative. They're not absolute. Okay. So, you know, the guy, the guy with the four-year-old Mustang in a poor country is the coolest guy in town. You know, in a rich country, he's, you know, slightly socially embarrassing, okay? The idea that you can make such a claim is totally batshit. I mean, absolutely stupid. Because it's simply, you know, it's all very well saying, well, mathematically, this optimises well-being. But how are you defining well-being? If you're defining well-being purely in absolute wealth terms, um, then you haven't got a very good grasp of how people really think, feel and uh, decide. Uh, I mean, it's also worth remembering that, by the way, sometimes the narrative on capitalism is too pessimistic because of the angle in which people... So it looks as though, even though certain deciles of society are doing worse than others over time in the developed world, most people are doing better and better as they go through the path of their life. And most people in the bottom decile, which would include, bear in mind, it might well include students. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we don't really think of students as poor in the way we think of the homeless as poor, right? Mm-hmm. But they may actually be in the same quadrant of, uh, of low assets, low earnings, mm-hmm. as people who are significantly poor. Now, n- nobody, the reason nobody goes poor students is because uh, they're taking a decision, a bit like, you know, I guess, monks in Burma or something. They're taking a decision to be poor for part of their life in order to give them advantages later on Mm -hmm. and it's so you know one of the extraordinary things is that a huge amount of economic statistics seems to involve aggregation when the only perspective that we really care about is what happens to us over time really yeah how is life feeling to me as it's lived by me individually and it's perfectly possible theoretically, by the way, to have a society in which everybody, in which every group, every group is getting poorer um, over time, but where every individual is getting richer over time. It's unlikely. And the opposite is also theoretically possible. You could have everybody getting poorer 
uh, while the collective age groups or, or whatever deciles are actually uh, are going in the opposite direction. And remember, when you do that, when you do look at individuals in um, advanced economies, the picture is less gloomy than the, the aggregate, isn't it? That's it yes, it is. Yeah, the lived life picture is much less gloomy than the um, uh, than when you look at it through ninety degrees. Mm-hmm. And um, I find this very interesting, by the way, because I find that most models of uh, most economic models by the act of aggregation, one, and by the act of removing those uh, perceptual measures which are hardest to quantify mathematically, okay? We we don't have an SI unit for envy. We don't have an SI unit for regret. We don't have an SI unit for... um, Well, actually, we don't have an SI unit for um, uh, variance reduction. You you could probably construct one. It'd be interesting to do, Mm. okay? But because they use... This is Hayek here, isn't it? I think uh, because they obsess about those those measures that are now in physics, the things that matter, temperature, volume, mass, etc., are measurable and numerically expressible. In human behaviour, the things that matter may be you know wackily non-linear um, uh, and really re- and, you know and aren't capable of expression in uh, numerical form. And so when you allow economists to define a problem, you also give them a monopoly over the solution. Now, I'll give you a very simple example of this. I want to know what you think. Okay, so I'm a marketer and I naturally tend to think of things. I'm not saying it's because I'm particularly clever. It's because I've spent 30 years doing it. You naturally tend to think of things through the single consumer's eye view. Mm -hmm. If you are a kind of mathematical modeler and you look at things by creating clumps of people, in the act of aggregation, you lose distinctions between different human beings. So let me explain a very simple problem, which I think marketers could solve very easily, and indeed have done, okay, in another category, and which economists basically could never solve because they're looking at the same information through 90 degrees. And so let's take train overcrowding, okay? I went and spoke at a train conference the other day and said there's one very interesting thing about train overcrowding. Just as, by the way, high-speed two might be a daft idea, unless you make it stop more frequently and create extra stations and build towns around them. High-speed two may be a dumb idea because it doesn't distinguish between um, 100 people saving an hour once a year and one person saving an hour 100 times a year. Mm -hmm. Now, high-speed one, if you live in Canterbury, it saves you an hour a day 220 times a year. That's game-changing for the Canterbury property market, for the East Kent economy, hugely, hugely important thing, okay? Nobody really travels to Manchester 200 times a year. If you do, you don't need a train, you need an estate agent, okay? Uh, It'd be hugely expensive if you think about it, Mm. apart from anything else. So, So there's a huge difference between saving some people a huge amount of time and saving a lot of people a small amount of time. My propensity, I went to Manchester, I came back from Manchester last night, for enough, my propensity to travel to Manchester won't be inordinately increased or significantly increased by the, you know, 40-minute reduction in journey time. It may be more than that, it may be okay. It may be an hour's reduction each way. But nonetheless, since I only do the journey infrequently, you know, eight times a year, it's not a big deal to me. It doesn't change anything. Now, the same way, if you take train overcrowding, None of the measures of train overcrowding distinguish between 10 people who have to stand 10% of the time and one person who has to stand 100% of the time. So I said, look, once you make that distinction, it's actually quite easy to solve this problem. You basically say, 
In the morning and in the evening, you run two trains in each direction, which are exclusively for um, annual and quarterly season ticket holders. So the people who travel the journey most frequently are assured of a seat if they want to. You know, if you're a non-season ticket holder, well, you can buy a season ticket, one option, and use the train, or you can go and buy a first-class ticket maybe and sit on the train, but that's it. Mm. You know, the rest of you will have to wait a bit longer. And that, those trains only need to run over the most overcrowded portion of the journey. They don't, they don't have to go all the way out to, you know, um, at the end of the line. And similarly, what you could do is you say, well, make first class bigger. Everybody with an annual season ticket um, is allowed to sit in first class, as are people with a first class ticket. And then off-peak trains will do something clever with first class, like we'll just charge a flat fee. Or maybe you could just say, you can pay us 300 quid a year and you can travel in first class on off-peak trains mm -hmm. for one lump sum payment. And the point is you're paying for a table or, you know, use of a laptop in space. Yeah. Okay. Now, the interesting thing is you'll only solve this problem if you look at um, uh, the problem from a non-aggregate, non-average. So looking at something through the eye of the average consumer mm. is meaningless because the, the solution probably lies somewhere at the extremes. And what's interesting to me about that is I then detailed that to some other consultants and they said, um, a bunch of management consultants, very astutely, and I should know this because I've, you know, I've worked with British Airways gone up. And I said, that's exactly what happens on an airline anyway. I said, shit, you're right. Because if you think about it, if I fly on British Airways once a week, even in economy, right, mm -hmm. um, after about you know, six to eight months, I'll get a silver a bronze card, a silver card, a gold card. What that will mean is that in future, even if I'm traveling in economy still, and in an economy seat, my check-in experience, my lounge experience, uh, and my boarding experience will be exactly the same as a business class traveller. And so essentially what BA is doing is it's taking the most frequent economy travellers and upgrading them to business class for part of the journey. Mm -hmm. And so what I was proposing, if you think about it, if you ate at a restaurant every week, you kind of expect a better table. Yeah. You? you know, let's be fair. And interestingly, I asked other people who are non-season ticket holders, including myself, I'm not a season ticket holder, do you think this is fair? And they went, yeah, it's perfectly fair. If you've got an annual season ticket, you deserve preferential treatment on the train. But it strikes me that essentially what economics has created is a thing which is two things in one, which is a problem definition uh, mechanism, which then therefore gives a monopoly over solution. Because once you've defined the problem in economic terms, the only person who can solve the problem is an economist. And as people have very astutely said, when you give the, pro the problem to an economist, the solution basically boils down to uh, finding people or bribing people. You know, because we're rational, you know, we're reactive. You know, because that's the only incentive we'll yeah. react to. You know. yeah. And it's therefore the creative opportunity cost of economics is immense because it provides you with maybe only two out of 20 psychological levers you can use to change behaviour. You can change behaviour with social norms, you can change behaviour with all forms of exciting persuasion, but instead this is just basically incentives. Now, incentives are really important. I'm not disputing the fact that incentives work, okay, not for a second. You know, yield management is one of the best ideas in transportation for ages. You know, it wouldn't really work for daily commuting, that would be a bit too random. But um, but the idea that you reduce behaviour change problems to simply the question of incentives is essentially, that's like trying to play golf with one club. 
And so, you know, it, it, what it is, and I think, I think humanity needs to learn this, that there's this trade-off between the need to be certain, okay, and the narrowness of the model that it will deliver. So the, the, an obsessive need for absolute objective certainty essentially causes people to adopt models which are ludicrously oversimplistic. But are, so, you, are you sort of, just sorry to interrupt, are you, are you asking economists to sort of butt out of stuff or to be sort of just more well, humble think, in I terms of... I think they need to give other people a chance. Right. Uh, uh, by the way, uh, uh, you, you think by that I mean marketers. I don't necessarily... Although I do yeah, include yeah. lots of creative people. I'm interested to know how Bob Dylan would solve the problem of trade overcrowding, for example. <laughs> more interested, to be honest, than I would be to see how a Chicago school economist would. Because I know exactly how the Chicago School Economist would solve the problem, uh, you know, by some sort of price mechanism. Yeah. Um, but I'd also say that we need complexity physicists, you know, people who understand complex systems much better. Um, uh, you know, and there are wonderful you know, people at the Santa Fe Institute and so forth who are doing work on this. Uh, you need a, probably better statisticians, actually. Um, but also you probably need biologists and evolutionary psychologists in some shape or form. And you probably need some advertising people because advertising people are basically just um, greedy anthropologists. But they have had quite a lot of practice. Mm -hmm. okay. And uh, your likelihood, the number of times you can actually say, okay, the way to solve a problem creatively, or indeed the way to innovate. Uh, my argument is that... Um, uh, standard economic doctrine has become so all-pervasive. One, I actually go so far as to say, has it made the West weak? But what I mean is that Western organisations, whether it's the EU or the United States or uh, regulators, etc., are so enthralled to a few economic ideas that the Chinese can basically exploit the predictability of our behaviour. Now, as a game theorist, there must there's an element to Trump's randomness, which I actually consider terrifying, though it is at times, might be of value. Mm -hmm. Which is, in military strategy, you can't be entirely predictable or logical because the enemy knows exactly what you're going to do. No, you know, if you sat down and said, okay, we, you know, we want to, con you know, uh, we want to control the world's rare earth metals. Okay. The West will just go, well, patently, the person who pays the most for these things is the person who values them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? So has the West become so enthralled to the same... Not to say that the, the doctrine is necessarily disastrously wrong, it's actually contributed a lot of wealth, but does it actually weaken... Has economics now weakened a large part of uh, the world simply by making it, in other words, intellectually kind of monoton you know, monolithic? Mm -hmm. That you could basically say, you know, if we feel like buying some asset of strategic importance, you know, something which no one would have dreamed of selling to the Russians in 1952 will now be essentially sold to the highest bidder on the international market. Yeah. Um, that, that worries me a bit. Um, and then, um, so if you want to innovate, one really simple thing to do is just to go, okay, what, what does everybody assume in this marketplace? Uh, it, the need to be to win arguments and to look rational means that educated people are disproportionately inclined to all cleave to the same model, and uh, that same model will have, in order to achieve its intellectual neatness, will contain assumptions uh, which are either uh, incomplete or, or diametrically wrong. And so, an example of this would be. Uber was a very significant innovation in the um, 
uh, taxi market, principally, in fact, because it completely changed the psychological experience of waiting for a taxi, not because it changed the um, uh, the uh, objective duration of the wait. Right. So, okay, first thing Uber does is I go online, I open my app, it gives me an expectation of how long I might expect to wait for a car. Uh, previously, you had to ring up only to be disappointed. Okay. Here, it makes me go, okay, there are loads of cars around, I'll leave booking a car for another 15 minutes versus, ooh, bloody hell, there's a 25-minute wait and surge pricing, I've got to book a car now. Then when you've booked the car, because you can watch it approach, your brain, bear in mind what your, what your brain is, I guess, focused on is what's the worst that can happen, you know. Um, uh, and when you have uncertainty, your brain basically creates negative possibilities, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that paranoid fear of... Uh, I used to, uh, uh, funnily enough, I used to smoke, and the one thing I'd never do is smoke before I left the house in the morning. Because if I did have a cigarette at home in the morning, I'd spend the entire journey to work convinced that there was a fire uh, in my flat. And so, um, just out of the window, you can probably see Blackfriars Station, and one of the most important innovations in transport is the dot matrix display, which tells you how long it is before the next train arrives. Why? Because our potential for imagining the worst, which is a, when you think about it in evolutionary terms, is quite a useful. Yes. Uh, mental mechanism <clears throat> causes us to as soon as we don't know there's a train we immediately start thinking it's cancelled I'm going to be stranded here overnight the second we see we'd be much happier waiting nine minutes for a train where it said um, Seven Oaks nine minutes than waiting five minutes for a train in a state of not knowing and so once you understand psychology what you realise is there's the objective reality and there's the actual uh, experience of that reality and they're really really different um, and the trouble is that when, even when humans are researched in market research, they tend to kind of pretend they're a bit like economists. Mm -hmm. And they try and attach to their behaviour the most rational sounding explanation, rather than the one that actually accurately describes the reason for their emotional state. Yeah. Um, so basically, uh, basically marketing and advertising, I think, is the science of knowing what economists are wrong about. Um, and I would also argue that the superiority of um, <clears throat> Western consumer capitalism over control economies is actually far more credit get, needs to go to marketing uh, than it currently receives. Because the problem you had in the Soviet Union is you assumed that a car was about transportation. You assumed that what people said they wanted and what logic should suggest they wanted was um, what they were going to get. Competition is actually immensely wasteful, but competition provides not only um, innovations in the shape of, uh, you know, incentivizing people to attempt to solve problems in different mm -hmm. ways. It also provides really extraordinary psychological discoveries. Mm -hmm. This uh, is the this is the Austrian book. school, isn't it? I mean, this is I mean, Hayek's kind of knowledge problem is about what people actually want. So actually, the knowledge problem, the Hayek's great thing is how does the market understand what people want? Yes. Now. Actually, I think it goes deeper than that, which is we don't even understand what we want, mm. okay? And if you asked us what we wanted in a car, <clears throat> we would never have come up with leather piping on the seats, okay? And so, you know, there are lots of things about cars that we really, really like and enjoy, which we would never have actually come up with when, 
you know, if, if someone had attempted to form a mathematical formula for what a great car is, actually, if everybody, if every consumer bought cars to afford them, cars would be terrible. Because mm. over about five to ten years, car manufacturers would just game the system. And the cars would be very good on three dimensions and terrible on everything else. But, so, weirdly, the only way you can find out what people want is to give it to them and see what happens. Yeah. And so, I mean, the, 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 I'll grant you this isn't quite the Apollo program, okay? But Soviet capitalism could never have come up with Red Bull. Yeah. Uh, Soviet communism, sorry, yeah, could yeah. never have come up with Red Bull because nobody would sit down and focus and go, well, what we really need for the next five-year plan of the Soviet Socialist Republic is um, a really expensive drink that comes in a tiny can and tastes revolting, okay? You're never going to get people saying that. And anybody who sat down and proposed it who'd gone into the Supreme Soviet and said, don't worry, guys, we're going to produce this really weird-tasting drink. They might have met, you know, met their sort of steel targets if they were interested. Uh, well, actually, even then, of course, they needed to bring back brands because mm. one, um, one of the problems was because they believed that brands were, un, were ideologically un-Marxist or something, um, the person who manufactured the rivets for shipbuilding was an anonymous factory and then they effectively merged all the rivets together and then distributed them to shipbuilders. And they then discovered that one in three of the rivets was much less reliable than the other two, but they couldn't work out which factory it produced. It's like not knowing which is the Samsung TV. And which, which is, is only exactly. Yeah. And so they actually had to effectively swallow their ideological awkwardness and insist that factories stamp the provenance on the good as a skin-in-the-game guarantee of, uh, of quality control. Mm-hmm. I mean, an interesting case which is semi-communist. You remember those funny little electric things people used to ride on about before Christmas, three or four years ago? Oh, yeah, yeah. There were never any hoverboard- brands Were they hoverboards or whatever? Hoverboards. Yeah. And duck, um, they were called variously the hoverboard, the something board, squeegee... I can't remember what they I know, I know the ones you mean. Stupid names. They were two wheels and a yeah, yeah. thing. And there weren't proper brands there because they were named by the importers, not by the manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Now, once that's happening, there's no incentive for a manufacturer to improve the product because the gains will be equally distributed to all yep. brands. Equally, when one of them caught fire, do you remember this before Christmas? Yes, set yeah. fire to someone's Christmas tree. The problem you had was that no, the consumers didn't know which brand of hoverboard to avoid, so they avoided the whole category. Because yep. there was no incentive, in a sense, for quality control because the gains or consequences of, of poor or good quality didn't accrue specifically mm-hmm. to you, the manufacturer. They were spread amongst a whole bunch of competing people. And so without that brand system to close the feedback loop, innovation basically doesn't work. That was Rory Sutherland. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.